get out of here in my notes. And okay, thoughts, questions from this morning's message. Daniel had to fly through a bunch of it. There's a couple of things I'd like to draw attention to, but I'll let you guys go first if there's any any uh, thoughts or questions or anything. Don't all raise your hands at once. Okay. Daniel answers everybody's questions. Okay, I see. Wow. Oh, ouch. Okay. Okay, it's like that, is it? Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, clearly. Um, well, I want to draw attention to just the whole, the children, the, uh, the go to Luke 7. Um, it's, it's not uncommon at all, and I love the way Jesus calls this out. The whole, we, we uh, played the flute for you, and you did not dance, and we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Um, verse 32. And what, what he's basically saying is, and this is common amongst people, that when you don't like the message, you blame the messenger. So the metaphor is the children decide it's time to play the wedding game. Let's play the wedding game, and we'll play the flute, and we'll be dancing. And then John the Baptist shows up, and he's not, he's not, that's not his thing. You know, he's, oh, what a bummer, man. You're harsh in my chill, John. You're so austere. And then it's like, well, let's play the, the funeral game. We're all pretending we're at a funeral, and let's play a dirge. And then Jesus shows up. And the point is, as, as, as Daniel pointed out, they'd already rejected God's purpose for them. And once you've rejected God's purpose, you're just going to find convenient ways of blaming it on the messenger. So, yeah, John's a little austere, you know, and his message was kind of harsh. And it's kind of hard to take it from a guy wearing camel hair. And, uh, yeah, we're not so sure about that. Well, then Jesus shows up. And I'm like, oh, look at this guy. And, and Jesus is just calling him out with the classic, when you don't like the message, you blame the messenger. Um, it's, it's, it happens all the time. Today as well, you know, um, not an uncommon thing at all. So, anyway, other other thoughts or yes, the microphone. There are people I'm telling you, who who are, who, who consistently thank me for for being zealous to keep the mics going because they listen to this. So, in the ESV. Verse 29 and 30 are in brackets. In the ESV, verse 29 and 30 are in brackets. Um, Why is that? That's interesting. I'm not entirely sure. Um, because it breaks up what Jesus says. The thought is that, um, I believe, is because it breaks up what Jesus says. So what you've got is a direct quote by Jesus, yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this in the tax collectors, they declared God just, having, not, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then? And Luke doesn't include, and then Jesus said. So they've got to find some way to put this um, narrator speak in between the speech of Jesus, and since he doesn't reintroduce Jesus, and then Jesus said, that's how you do it. It's not an indication of any uncertainty in the text, as far as I can tell. It's simply a grammatically legitimate way of accounting for the obvious narration inserting itself into Jesus' speech without any 
comma, pause, and then Jesus continued and said, it just, Jesus picks up speaking again. So you gotta find some way to make it clear, narrator, person speaking. Does that make sense? Okay, no, good, good, good question. Good. Yes, Amy, you should ask your husband at home. I mean, he taught this after all, right? I was like, am I gonna get in trouble here? Okay, okay. <laughs> I just wondered, because I've read this passage before, and it never once, and I mean, obviously I'm not Daniel, and nor you, Jeremy. You're not Daniel? No, so I Whoa. don't always internalize things to the degree, but um, okay. I never would have thought when, when John asked, sent the messengers to ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? It, to me, that was a legitimate question and it wasn't, um, I never interpreted it as you know, he's being impatient or he's um, wondering, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. and, and so, and I don't know maybe if that, how does one interpret that when they read that? Is it just through commentaries? Is there some more in No, no, no. I mean, yeah, you look at the text. You want to get clues in the text. So what do we get in the text? What does Luke frame this as? Luke frames it as a gentle rebuke. Blessed is the one who's not offended, which that, that's your first hint. Jesus isn't rebuking John, but he is warning him, cautioning him, right? I mean, isn't there an implied don't be offended going on there? Well, see, I even when I read that, I always associated it with the people who were watching the doings of Jesus. Like, I, I, I'm okay. sure I'm missing a lot of dots no, no. to connect, but... No, 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 good. So what other reading can you take with John's question? Give me, give me a reading of John's question that doesn't involve any vacillation on his part. Are you the one to come, or should we wait for another? Contrasted with, this is the one of whom I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. Um, he will baptize with fire and with the Spirit. I mean, he's made some pretty bold declarations. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world um, in John 1. How else other than, I mean, so if you're saying, how do we know whether it's really him vacillating, what's the other option? That he's being sassy or whatever. He's being sassy? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, are you asking like the alternative? I mean, if... You know what I mean? Not sassy. That but. sassy John. <laughs> uh, sorry, that's just too easy. That's too easy, Amy. <laughs> but I mean, if he legitimately doesn't know, right. that's one thing. But if what you're saying is that no, he does know, and he's throwing the question back hypothetically, that's what I mean by sassy. Right? Okay, okay. So I guess I was not sure that he really did know at this point then, if he's questioning whether... No, that's, that's precisely the point. How do you go from knowing what he knows when he first points out Jesus in all four Gospels? I mean, he has some of the most developed Christology at that point out of anyone. I mean, so in John 1, he bases Christ's superiority because he is before me. So he bases his... The pre-existence of Christ in John 1 is the basis for why he's greater than John. So how does John know he's pre-existent? I mean, that's huge. A huge mental, like, getting his head wrapped around that. The disciples didn't have their heads wrapped around that yet. Um, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Another massive Christological putting things together. The disciples did not have that put together at that point. And even later they don't. Um, and so John's declarations and his knowledge of Jesus at the baptism of Jesus, you're trying to square this guy who's put more of the pieces together and is, and is making more profound Christological sayings than anyone at that time, other than maybe demoniacs. Um, how does he go from there to, are you the one or should we wait for another? And, and so 
you've either got to figure out, okay, he's being sarcastic or rhetorical, if, he, if it's sincere. Or sassy. Or sassy. <laughs> or it really is um, the vacillation. And um, then, you've, then I think Daniel did a good job explaining, well, how, how could that be? Well, John's waiting. I mean, the very text Jesus quotes in Luke 4, I'm here to set prisoners free. John's, I'm a prisoner. Awesome. I can hardly wait till Jesus shows up tonight to let me out. And then that doesn't happen. And Jesus isn't starting a revolt, and he isn't building an army to fight Rome, and he isn't doing any of that. And you, your expectations are off. Um, I mean, surely, has, has anyone here ever felt certain they knew what God was going to do? You're just so confident you were praying for something, you're asking for something, whether it's the salvation of a friend or whether it's, whether it's a job or whether, it's, whether it's, it's, it's healing somebody who's sick. And you're just so confident and then it doesn't happen and you feel like, what happened? I was so confident I knew what God was doing. I, I, I think that's where John's at. He so thinks he understands what the Messiah is going to do and then the order in which he's going to do it that when Jesus isn't doing the things he's expecting, there's confusion. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally in agreement with your husband. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think there's plenty of... Um, if you, if you think through what John's going through and what the clear messianic expectations were, there's plenty of reason that, that would give a plausible explanation for how John can go from being such an um, ardent and insightful uh, um, prophet declaring who Jesus is. How so he can go from there to, are you the one or should we wait for another? And, and I think it's just the, the messianic expectations. I mean, people have used this analogy, but I think it's helpful. Um, of the two, the two mountains, when you look at the horizon of the mountain range, sometimes it just looks like one big mountain. And you get closer, and there's this big valley in between. And there's just a bunch of texts. Go to Zechariah. I know of at least one good one in Zechariah, okay? I want you to understand why the uh, Zechariah 9, um, why this was so uh, confusing to them. We have, we, have the, we have the blessing of the perspective of seeing how it was played out. And yet you come to Zechariah 9, and uh, you read verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now we know, because the New Testament quotes that, what that references. What is this referencing? Triumphal entry, just before the crucifixion. Now look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from a frame and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What's that talking about? That's, that's the kingdom that is established after the second coming. That's not even the second coming. That's, that's the reign of Messiah on earth. Verse 9 is 2,000 years ago. Verse 10 is still future. No, 
Now, there's, nothing, there's no error here. It's, the Bible doesn't say this will happen and then immediately this will happen. But you can sympathize how a reader would think, yeah, the Messiah will come, he'll ride on his donkey, and then he'll rule. Right? I mean, that, that would be a natural reading of this text. There's no, the text doesn't say that. This text doesn't say this will happen, then boom, the next thing will happen. But what you get is many, many threads in the Bible where Messiah will come and he will suffer and he will rule. They're all true. We just now know there's at least about a 2,000-year gap, at least, between the suffering Messiah who is an atonement for sin and the conquering, ruling Messiah who crushes enemies under his feet and the sword of his mouth will devour his adversaries. There's at least a 2,000-year gap. There is no such clarity in many Old Testament passages. So they're expecting all these things of the Messiah. And, um, and you, you go to John 1. The Pharisees hadn't even put all this stuff together. Um, there's a lot of, we have a lot of messianic clarity this side of the cross. They did not. Because what you get, let me, let me use an analogy of streams. You know how there's streams will pour into a larger river, the tributaries? What you get are a number of Old Testament streams of thought of coming, indiv- coming individual or individuals. And we know all these threads form one river, the Messiah. So there's a coming Messiah. There's a suffering servant. There's a new priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. There's a a king from the tribe of Judah. There's a son figure who's coming. And there's a prophet like Moses who's coming. And in John 1, I'll I'll get to you in one second, um, JP, if you want to get the mic over there ahead of time. In John 1... If you remember from two weeks ago or three weeks ago, when Jesus raises the widow's son, the people say, great prophet has arisen among us. And I said that 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 setting up where where Luke's going in chapter 9, where Elijah shows up and Moses show up, and then God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And in Deuteronomy 18, God says through Moses that, after your days, Moses, I will raise up from among your, your brethren a prophet like you, and I'll put his word in, my word in his mouth, and as to him you shall listen. If someone will not listen to him, I will require it of him. And then Deuteronomy ends with, to this day there has not arisen another prophet like Moses. And so Jesus is that great prophet who we are to listen. That's why the Father says, listen to him. Look at John 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent spies and priests, sorry, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. And that's what they're referencing is the Deuteronomy passage. See, in their mind, the Messiah and the prophet are distinct people. And there's nothing in Deuteronomy in that passage about the prophet that makes it clear in that pas- passage, this prophet I'll raise up will also be your king, will also be your Messiah, will also be my son. Now, there are passages that start to bring some of that together. Psalm 2, in particular, go to, go to Psalm 2, is huge for this, because Psalm 2 makes it clear um, that the king who is the Messiah is also the son. It unites Three of, those, three, of, three of those tributaries join up in Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is massive for developing 
a, a growing understanding of who the Messiah is. And I will get to JP in just a moment. I just want to look at Psalm 2. In each paragraph or strophe, there's four of them, the Lord is mentioned, all caps, Yahweh, and this other person. So each, each strophe, for each paragraph, is three verses long, and they're in couplets where things get repeated. So you get, why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. We're not really talking about two things. We're poetically describing the same thing two different ways. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together. And again, we're not talking about two meetings. We're talking about one meeting being described as the kings setting themselves, the rulers taking counsel together. Against the Lord and against his anointed. And if you remember, anointed is just English for the Hebrew Messiah or Messiah. And Greek translation would be Christos or Christ. So Christ Messiah and anointed are simply Greek, Hebrew, and English for the same thing. So when you see anointed here, you're seeing Messiah. You're seeing his Christ, just switching languages. The Lord and his Christ, his anointed, his Messiah. So in the first strophe, the Lord's here, and the Messiah's here. Second, verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. And who said God doesn't have a sense of humor? The Lord holds them in derision. There's the Lord. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So who are the, it's the Lord and the king. First paragraph, it's the Lord and the Messiah. Now it's the Lord and the king. Third strophe, third paragraph, verse seven, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, which is quoting the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So third strophe, the Lord and the Son. And then fourth strophe, it's the Lord and the Son again. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And so Psalm 2 makes it clear then that the coming Messiah is the coming King, is the coming Son. And at least now we know those three things are one person. But Psalm 2 doesn't also tell you he's the coming priest and he's the coming prophet. And so you've got to keep working through your Bible to figure out this is all ultimately one person. Psalm 110 unites king and priest. So Psalm 110 would be the next step in developing your, your messianic theology. Okay, we know the king is the son, is the Messiah, and Psalm 110 makes it clear the king is also the priest in the order of Melchizedek. But this is, this is the type of biblical math you've got to do to start figuring some of this stuff out. And this is why the Pharisees and why John the Baptist even are confused because we, they don't have the clarity that we have from this side of the cross. That's why you to sympathize a little bit with why they're confused. Because um, they have all these expectations because there are lots of passages that have a lot of things to say about when the Messiah comes. Um, yes, JP. So um, instead of saying that John is vacillating between these two, whether Jesus is or isn't, could it be that he's clarifying that Jesus is the one we're waiting for and not Jesus and the prophet and the priest? Well, except there's still the very point of the question, are you the one or should we wait for another? If you're asking should you wait for another, there's some sense in which you're entertaining doubt of the identity of Jesus. Unless it's simply a rhetorical teaching device or being sassy or whatever. You know, you are the Messiah. Are you the Messiah or should we wait for someone else? I mean, there's an implicit... There's an, right, but 
what he just said was that they weren't clear on the Messiah and the king and the priests were one person. So could it be that John was saying, listen, I get that you're the Messiah, but are you the king as well? Yeah, no that, priest, no, that could be are we in fact, for another one. In some strains of Judaism, we don't get this from the Bible, we get this from the Jewish rabbinical sources. In some strains, in some traditions, they were expecting multiple messiahs. Because remember, the Old Testament calls all sorts of people the Lord's anointed. David's the Lord's anointed, Saul is the Lord's anointed. Translate David is the Lord's Messiah, Saul is the Lord's Messiah. Ahab, I think at one point, even gets called the Lord's anointed. Um, oh no, yeah. And so there's, there's all sorts of messiahs and Christs running around in the Old Covenant. And then the Bible makes it clear, but I will send the Messiah. And there's, there's going to come an anointed who is the anointed. But there were strains of Judaism that thought to deal with those multiple expectations, multiple messiahs. There's a suffering messiah and there's a ruling messiah. Well, that's even partly right. You're recognizing the division. There's solution to people. You know, but yeah, there's, there's all different ways of handling the tension of what do you do with like Isaiah 53, this crushed servant, and Psalm 2, the Messiah who you better watch out and do homage to him or he'll break you like a, like a potter's vessel with a rod, taking a rod and just smashing a piece of pottery. How do, you, how do you take Psalm 2 and Isaiah 53 and say, that's the same guy? I'd almost ask the Messiah if he was the king or if there was another so maybe, maybe John's thinking the multiple Messiah. Maybe he's sitting there. I think, I think Daniel's right in the confusion. How do you, he, he's only doing part of this. He, he's only doing part of what the prophecy said he would do. And what do we do with the parts he hasn't done? Well, there's a couple possibilities. We know time is the factor. He's only fulfilling part of the prophecies now, right? Or it could be, He's only to fulfill part of the prophecies. There's another Messiah who's going to do the other parts. Maybe that's what he's thinking. And so it's not denying Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe, maybe the question is, are there multiple Messiahs? Is there two or three guys coming, and you're, you're one of them, and you're awesome, and the next guy's going to be equally cool? I, I don't know. But that's, that's a possibility, that, that he's not questioning who Jesus is, but are you doing all of it, or is somebody else doing the other bit? Maybe that's going on as well. Um, no, that's... Is that, is that basically what you're saying? Okay. Um, other thoughts or questions? Oh, Elsa, you got the mic right there. How convenient. So um, is it fair to say then the mystery of the church was hidden in the Old Testament? They didn't know about the church that was going to be established. So this time period was also for establishing the church. Yeah, let's, let's back. Well, it's not fair to say. It's, it's Pauline to say that. Let's go to Ephesians 2. Um, go to Ephesians 2. That, that is the other piece. The time period we are living in now, when, when Paul talks about a mystery, when the, when the Greek mysterion is used, it's not like a whodunit. It's not like an Agatha Christie. It's not saying, here's something you could have pieced together, and if you were really smart, like Ecuaparo, you would have put together. Rather, the Greek word means something hidden now revealed. So a mystery is not, you know, like, yeah, like a, like a detective story, is rather a hidden piece of information now revealed. And, and so in Ephesians 2, Paul has this to say. I think I probably should get there myself, huh? Um, okay. Um, verse 11 of chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 11. 
Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. So through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you've also been built together into dwelling place by God for the spirit. And so there is the picture of the Jew and Gentile coming together into one new man. Now read 3.1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. What mystery? What he just said. The mystery that these two groups, these two disparate groups of people with a big wall of division of laws and food laws and and clothing laws and, and circumcision and everything, these two groups would be made into one new man, the church, the wall being removed in Christ's body, that mystery. And he says, assuming, verse two, that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So this this whole you, me, us here today, completely not revealed in the old covenant. Surprise! You know, like Paul's saying. So that's the other piece that you read through your Old Testament. You are not. You get that God has a plan for the nations. You get that there are psalms like Psalm. Um, what is it? Psalm 93, I think, um, where God, God will call the nations and the nations will honor Messiah. And you get to the end of Zechariah and the Messianic kingdom, the nations will come and worship the Lord year after year. So we know it goes beyond Israel. But how that happens and in what capacity that happens wasn't revealed. And so the, 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 the us and Jews being joined in the church Completely a mystery. The last 2,000 years, the Old Testament really didn't have much to say about. So that, that, can, that adds to the um, confusion. You know? And because there's a sense in which, um, when Jesus came, there's a sense in which, forget a sense in which, go to, go to Matthew. Let's, let's, we got four or five minutes. We'll go, go to Matthew 20. I've got it underlined. Um, or unless, Zeb, you want to look it up for me? King, just look kingdom 
fruits in Matthew 20-something. Kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who bear its fruits. Matthew 21, 43. All right. Thank you. And this is where it gets tricky um, because it's clear, Paul is emphatically clear that what is happening right now is not plan B. The church, the Jew and Gentile becoming one in Christ is not plan B. Yet equally, the Bible will portray the gospel going to the Gentiles and the subsequent church is a result of Israel's rejection of Jesus. So the Bible can also meaningfully speak, and this is where we gotta hold this tension of Jesus saying what would have happened or implying what would have happened had Israel not rejected him. Oh, Israel, Israel, city that stones the prophets and those sent her, how many times I would gather you up like a mother hen, but you were not willing. And so the Bible will, will say, and we'll see in Matthew 21, um, verse what? Chapter 21, what? 43. Okay, let's, let's go to um, verse 43. Well, go to 42. Jesus said to them, have you not read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the Jewish leaders. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to an ethne, a people group, producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So, so there's a sense, there's a very real sense in which the gospel went to the church, went to us, because Israel rejected their Messiah. And so there is a cause and effect relationship here. And so, so when Jesus comes, one has to wonder, and we can, we can speculate, and I don't think we can know, what would have happened had Israel not rejected their Messiah? Well, in a real sense, you could say, the church wouldn't have happened, because of passages like this that make it clear. One, one other passage, go to Romans uh, 11. And we're speaking about what could have been, what might have been, and that's why I want to equally say, this isn't plan B. It's not as though God was going to do this one thing for Israel, and then Israel rejected Jesus, and he's like, oh, well, then let's do this instead. But the Bible will present, and Paul will in Romans 11, present what happened to us being a result of, of Israel stumbling. So, um, so let's, let's look at Romans 11. I we'll, won't we'll, take any questions. Okay. Um, let's pick it up in verse 11, Romans eleven eleven. So then I ask, did they, the they is ethnic Israel. Paul has been dealing in Romans 9, 10, 11 with what do we make of ethnic Israel? He said, nine, I could almost wish myself accursed for their sake, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, here it is, Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, there's Paul saying, because they rejected Jesus, the gospel came to us. And so, there is a real sense in which, causally, we only got access to Jesus through the gospel this way because Israel rejected Jesus. That's Paul's argument. Rather... Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Jesus comes to Israel, 
And, and, and what would have happened had they not rejected their Messiah? I don't know. But there wouldn't have been this 2,000-year gap, or if there was, it would have been very different because Paul's saying, the only reason we have the church doing what we're doing is because they rejected Jesus. And so some people have speculated, this is pure speculation, had Israel not rejected their Messiah, the Romans would have put him to death anyway, and the expectation of the Jews of Jesus bringing the kingdom in immediately potentially could have happened. Now, who knows? It's not what actually happened. What we can say is the last 2,000 years of the church right here wouldn't have happened or was caused by the rejection of Jesus. And so there is a big, like, who knows what if, um, if, if they hadn't done that. So does that, does that make any, any questions? Does that make any sense? Um, Yet what's going on is not plan B. That's, that's the tension, is, is this, not, this is not the other plan that, that, that God busted out. Does that make any, any nod? Yes, no, thousand-yard stare. Okay. Cody? You want the mic? Oh, he's, he's got it. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and uh, where does Jesus say your house is left desolate? Oh, Alyssa. Well, I know, I know in our heart and stuff that it isn't Plan B. Yeah. But is there a scripture that points to that that you can share that with people? We'll keep going in Romans eleven. Yes, yes. Um, so he's dealing with this whole notion. Um, look at verse twenty-five. Here's Paul's. Paul is. People look at Romans nine, ten, and eleven as these big, massive canons of predestination and election. This is the passage John Piper said was to him as, as, a, as a guy who was a big free willer Arminian, like a, like, a, like a rampaging and roaring lion seeking to devour free willers like him. This is, this is these chunks, and people wonder, why is Paul bringing out these massive guns of predestination and election? It's to explain what's going on with Israel. And what he's basically going to say is, this is all according to God's plan. This is not accidental. This is not plan B. And so with that in mind, look at 25 to the end of 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, who could be responsible for that? Not Israel. Israel didn't say, you know what? We really want the gospel to go to the Gentiles, so we're going to partially harden ourselves, and then when all the Gentiles come in, we'll, we'll soften ourselves. This isn't Satan's plan either. Satan isn't about people getting saved. These are divine passives. Who's the one doing the hardening? God. So Paul just said, if you unpack that, and you read through Romans 9 to 11, Israel rejected their Messiah because they were partially hardened by God. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have been received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that 
by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. Now, what he's saying is their disobedience has divine intentionality. There's no way around this. God has a purpose and a plan in their disobedience. That's, that's what he said. Verse 31, so they too now have been disobedient in order that. Here's, here's the purpose, and it's not their purpose, is it? This is not their intention in being disobedient. It's God's. And again, what, what, what you're seeing is Paul saying God has purpose and intention in Israel's sin. Because he's sovereign. They too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they may now receive mercy for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now that, if that's not clear... This is plan A. This is just plan. There's no plan A, B, or C. There's just plan. There's God's sovereign plan. And that then leads to Paul's closing doxology, closing the section out, and I'll close out with this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I'll see you all next week. God bless.